And then uh, you can keep your finger there in Psalm uh, 133 and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 11, which is a passage that we looked at last week. We're going to look at it a bit more this week. So Acts 11, verses 19 to 23. Now those who have been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done. And he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. This is, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Now, um, I, thanks for those words, first of all, about March. This, this is my first March in Ohio. This is my first winter in Ohio in 17 years. And I forgot what March in Ohio was like a little bit. I was prepared for November I was prepared to say goodbye to the sun in November, and it's like, well, it's December, you know, soon, and, and there's Christmas, and so you're excited about Christmas, uh, and then, you know, January, and I still haven't put on a pair of sunglasses in like, you know, 45 days, you get to January, and it's like, okay, it's first of the year, it's going gonna, it's gonna to turn the corner, um, days are getting a little bit longer, you get to February, and it's Groundhog Day, and so people are start th- thinking about spring, and and it's like March is coming, and then you get to March, and you get these, like, these hints of spring, right? It's like, oh, the beautiful days, and then it feels on days like this, kind of like a cruel joke. We woke up this morning, and like in Dalton, there was like an inch of snow. The roads were completely covered all the way till we got to, to Wilmot, and so um, I am believing by faith that spring is coming. I am, you're right, faith is the substance of things we hope for and evidence of things we do not see. And we don't see it, but by faith we believe spring is coming. And I always love, I love spring. And I love that the church, in its wisdom, early on, decided to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, Easter, in the spring. It's like, because we're, right now, we're in the season where we're, we're moving toward the celebration of, of Resurrection Sunday, in just a couple of weeks. And it's like, we are in this period that the church calls Lent, and it's just this 40-day journey, and it's kind of a journey um, with Jesus toward the cross where we kind of acknowledge darkness in the world, we acknowledge darkness in our life, and yet, as people of faith, we know that the darkness isn't going to win. Like, we know that uh, Jesus is raised from the dead, that the tomb is empty, that his light, like we talked about last week, his light shines into the world and the darkness can't overcome it. And I love that that happens in the springtime, because if you were to look at creation itself, creation is a picture of this. It's like you, you were to look at it, you wouldn't know that there was life there. Like, you were to look at the trees and they're dormant, and they look like they're dead, but they're not. Right? They're just in a season of dormancy. And any day now, do you know what's going to happen? They're going to wake up. And I always imagine, I, a couple of years ago, I was going for a walk early in the morning. I don't always get up early. I, I wish I was the kind of person that got up early. Um, but I don't. But when I do, that's, those are my times when I, I experience Jesus right, really closely. And I went for a walk, and it was about this time of the year. And, and I'm, I'm just kind of praying, talking with Jesus. And I just had this image of 
you know, like waiting for spring. And it was like right on that, you know, at any moment it's going to turn and grass is going to turn green and the trees are going to start budding out and the flowers are going to start blooming. And I just had this sense that springtime is God just whispering to his creation, wake up. It's like, what if that's what springtime is? If God just seeing his creation that's been asleep and just whispering to it and calling it from sleep to being alive, to being awake. And what if that's what we needed in our own souls? Like if there were places, even in our own souls, where we felt like, you know, I, I'm just kind of asleep right now. Like there, there are parts of me that, that maybe have, have just kind of gone dormant. Like my life with God maybe has, has just kind of in the season of dormancy. And what if God today, over the next couple of weeks, would just whisper to us, wake up, come alive, awaken? What if we were open to these whispers of God to wake our souls up? That's, that's my prayer. It's my prayer for myself and our, my prayer for us as a congregation that we would experience this over the next couple of weeks as we move toward Resurrection Sunday. And um, we're going to be continuing... I, this idea of a beautiful church. I started this last week, and I kind of thought initially, it's just going to be one Sunday. And like any pastor, I heard this this week, somebody said, pastors have this great way of saying in, in 30 minutes what could be said in five. Um, nobody said amen to that. It was just laughing. <laughs> My wife? No, Carmen, Carmen didn't say amen either. Um, but I thought that this idea of a beautiful church, we just talk about it one Sunday, and it actually turn into a whole series. We're actually going to look at this idea of what it means to be a beautiful church from now um, through Resurrection Sunday on Easter. And it's, it's part of what the scriptures do to us. Like you, you, you start studying the scriptures and you get a glimpse of, of just God's goodness. But then the deeper you go, the more clearly you see God and the deeper it gets. And, and like our life with God and the scriptures, they're just infinitely deep. And so it's, it's so, so beautiful. And so um, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to be looking at this church in Antioch, and we're going to look at what it means that this church was a beautiful church, and what it means that LifeBridge is a beautiful church, and how God is forming you all into this beautiful people of God. Now, what do we mean by beautiful? Because here's the danger with that word. It can sound fragile. It can sound a little flaky or, or just kind of dainty. Um, and that's not the kind of beauty we're talking about. Don't picture, like, beautiful as something that's, that's fragile. Um, Thomas Aquinas, theologian, uh, he said that beauty is something that when we see it, it pleases us. It's a pretty simple definition, right? You see it, you experience it, and something inside of you goes, wow. Like, that, it fills us with wonder and, and, and joy and awe. Think about for a second, what is the most beautiful thing you've ever experienced? What's the most, most beautiful thing you've ever experienced? Anybody want to share? Zion National Park, yes, phenomenally beautiful. Oh, yes! Yes, give the man a hand. You know, I was going to say, I actually had it in my notes to say that fellas... This is a great time to say your wife. This is, this is wisdom right there. Oh, so, so good. Uh, for, for me, it's very similar to Zion National Park. Is, um, you know, anybody know where this is? This is Yosemite. 
Oh my goodness, like a couple of years ago when I finished my master's program, we, we got to take a couple of days and we, we camped in Yosemite. And I remember the first time driving through the tunnel and this is the vista that opens up on the other side of the tunnel. And it was like, have you ever had those moments that are just like, is this, like, am I on earth or in heaven? Like this is just so unbelievably beautiful. Um, stunning, stunningly beautiful. For me, the most beautiful thing I have ever seen was my wife standing at this very spot. Um. <laughs> this is, this idea when we talk about beauty, we're talking about something called transcendent beauty. I realize that's, it's a, it's a big word, right? Transcendent beauty. What does that mean? Um, it means that there's something about God that breaks into our world through beauty, that breaks into our, our senses. And, and this is what Dallas Willard said. He said, beauty is God's goodness made manifest to us through our senses. So when you see something, you're like, wow, that's beautiful. And there's, there's wonder and there's awe in your heart because of it. It is some, because that thing, whatever it is, is like a reflection of God's beauty. We're seeing something of God. It is transcendent beauty. So don't think fragile. Don't think, you know, sort of dainty. Think transcendent beauty. And whether it's a landscape or a song or a poem or a moment in time, whatever it may be, it is beautiful because it is something of God that we are experiencing in this. And so we are told in the scriptures that there is something beautiful about God's people living together in unity. I mean, that there is something transcendently beautiful about the unity of a diverse group of people. Now, um, I don't know if you were familiar with Psalm 133. It's, it's a very short psalm, very interesting psalm. Uh, but here, here's how it begins, how good and pleasant, how beautiful it is, right? I mean, those are, those are words that are just synonyms for, for beauty. How beautiful it is when God's people live together in unity. That it makes God's goodness manifest to the senses that we experience it. Now, uh, a little bit about Psalm 133. If, if you're in the Psalms, if you go to Psalm 120, there's a... Uh, it, it begins this portion of psalms. There are 15 psalms called the Song of Ascents. Have you ever heard these before? These are not like, it's not like scent. These are not like scratch and sniff psalms. These are uh, ascent. That was a bad joke. Dad joke. Um, that's a great idea, though. That's, um, it's probably not a very good idea. Songs of Ascent. And, and it's about like ascending um, up to Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Israel, or if you know something about the geography of Israel, Jerusalem uh, is, is like, it's the highest point in the region. And so wherever you're coming from, whatever direction, you are going to be going up to Jerusalem. That's why they always call it, called it going up to Jerusalem. And so uh, every year, a couple times a year, people, Jews, through, throughout Israel and scattered in the other countries, they would come to Jerusalem. They would ascend to Jerusalem as pilgrims coming to worship God. And on the way, they would recite, they would say together these songs of ascent. Right? So you can imagine, like, people uh, from all walks of life, you have... Um, 
You have the wealthy and the poor. You have those who are kind of on the inside of cultural circles and those who feel marginalized. And they're all together. They're all ascending to the same place to worship God. And these are the words that are on their lips. How good and pleasant it is. How beautiful it is when God's people, in all of their diversity, um, live together in unity. You get, a, you get a picture of this, and then it goes on. It's kind of weird. It says how precious. It's like precious oil poured on the head and running down on the beard. It's like a dude whose beard oil game is like on point. Um, that's not what that means. It's a picture of the Old Testament, the Aaron the priest, who, who was anointed to be God's priest, and they anointed him by pouring this like very fragrant oil on his head, and it would run down like over his beard. And it was a symbol, this anointing of oil was a symbol of God's anointing, like Aaron being filled with God's spirit to do the work God has called him to. So that's what it's like. It's like the anointing of God is flowing on his people. And then look at the last verse here. It says, and when God sees it, he bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. I mean, there is something transcendently beautiful about God's people living together in unity. It's like when God sees people who are united together, he just anoints it with his spirit. And he pours his blessing on it. And he gives it life, eternal life. For, um, This is so, so powerful. But then it raises this question, like, how in the world is a church, how are we supposed to foster unity in a polarized age? That's kind of tough, isn't it? I mean, because there are so many forces that are pulling people apart, and we feel it. We feel it all the time. Um... And it would be interesting to have a conversation. Like, what do you feel like in, and we won't like open it up for that, but what do you feel like are the most sort of pressing forces that are polarizing people, that are, that are causing people to, to see each other as like us and them? Um, I'll just throw out a couple. Politics. I've only been here two weeks. Am I allowed to say the P word from, right? Politics, right? Um, it's, it's people who have different, visions for how the state should be governed. It's a big force for polarization. And, and it happens in the church. I, you know, was a pastor for 15 years. And um, so I pastored through numerous election cycles. And my prayer was always like, Lord, if you would just give me a sabbatical just through this election year, I would be so good. Because I just, you just watch people, right? Just like friends, people who are, you know, brothers and sisters in the church. And because they disagree on this thing, they just, like, grow distant. I, I watch people leave the church. Um, not because they had theological issues with the church, not because there was any, like, relational wound, but it was, it was because they had, like, they couldn't agree with people who disagreed with their political views who were also in the church. It's like, wow, that, that's painful. Um, so we have political polarization. We have economic polarization, right? These... Um, the, the gap between the wealthy and the disenfranchised. There's racial polarization in our world. There's generational polarization. The, the gap between, uh, the, I'll say, the more mature and the young, right? And, and meme culture, like social media, just like exacerbates this, doesn't it? Like you have these memes of like, so a person who can't work their device, what's the meme? Okay, boomer, right? You, have you seen this? 
um, I, I was actually with my, um, yeah, with my, I, w- I won't say who it was, family members, and I heard them say this. It wasn't my immediate family. Uh, I heard them say this to their parents, and like something inside was like, oh, that's, that's disrespectful. That's not like honoring, right? But it's, it's funny, but it's not, it's not honoring. And then on the other side, right, what do we say to somebody um, who's a millennial or Gen Z? Like, what's, what's the one word that comes up more than any describing these generations? Entitled, right? And so you see somebody who's a title that's like, oh, millennial or Gen Z. And again, it's, it's not honoring um, of one another. And so it creates this polarization between the generations, and it's not the way the church is called to be. And, and here's the thing. Like, there is an evil one, an enemy, an adversary, who loves to bring division. Like, who wants nothing more um, than to bring division, not just in the culture, but to the church. Because the church is the body of Christ. And, and so, we have to understand the schemes of the enemy, but we also have to understand, I think, hopefully, that these are not new divisions. Like, they're nothing new. The enemy doesn't have any new schemes. In fact, all of these um, aspects of division and polarization, they were alive and well in the time of Jesus in the early church. Um, Turn again to Acts chapter 11. I want to talk a little bit about the church in Antioch. We kind of introduced this beautiful church in Antioch last week, and I want to to talk a little bit more about that, of how they overcame some of these divisions that existed for them. Roman culture, like this is where where the gospel was first proclaimed. Jesus raised from the dead, and the the message of the kingdom of God breaking into this world, it it gets unleashed through the Roman world. And in the Roman world, um, it was incredibly hierarchical. Like, you knew exactly where you ranked. There was this incredibly distinct ranking system, and it kept people separated based on your social status. So let's say, um, let's say there was a, a wealthy homeowner in the community. The house of this wealthy homeowner would be designed so that you had barriers to cross, and the more barriers you crossed, the the higher you were on the social ladder. So let's say you got invited to this party at this wealthy um, homeowner's house. Well, um, if you were a slave or um, if you were very poor, you wouldn't even be allowed on the grounds. You would just, you could be on the street. But then, like, let's say you, um, you had a little bit more status, you could go into the courtyard, where just like all the common folk were. And then, um, if you could cross another social barrier, you would go into kind of, there was a, like a pool area or a garden area with a, with a fountain, you could mingle in that area. But if you were the most elite, you could go into the dining room. And, and again, even the dining room was set up as, as this hierarchy where um, if you were kind of maybe the lowest of that class, you had to stand or sit around the edges. But if you were the, the one who was maybe the homeowner or the special guest, you sat right in the middle of these tables. And you, you can hear Jesus talking about this. Like, hey, when you get invited to a banquet, don't take the seat of honor. Right? Don't, don't choose that. Choose the seat of least honor. And so here's how Greco-Roman culture was designed, is you could see, if you were sitting at the center of the table, you could see all the way to the street. They did this very purposefully, that you could see where every single person 
sort of ranked on the social ladder. And if you were on the street, you could see where every single person ranked above you. This is the culture that, that Jesus stepped into. This is the culture that the early church had to figure out, how do we get through these polarizations? And, and the ancient city of Antioch was so unique. It was this melting pot city. Um, John Stott, in his commentary, he says there were Africans there, Persians, Greeks, Jews, Chinese, Indians, all living in this one city of Antioch, but they were all separated from each other. They're like walled off and separated in their own little communities. But then, do you know what happens? The good news of Jesus comes to Antioch. The good news of the, the kingdom of God, this new order, this new social order, it, it comes to Antioch through these people who just start indiscriminately talking to people about Jesus as Lord, as he's king, and setting up this new kingdom. And it says in, in chapter uh, 11, verse 21, it says, a great number of people believed this message, and they did what? They turned to the Lord. And I love that phrase. They turned to the Lord. You imagine this, like somebody is just like walking uh, the, the normal way of life, just like everybody else, but all of a sudden they hear the message of Jesus and it causes them to believe it and to turn around. And they turn to the Lord. That's what happens in our hearts when we receive Jesus, is we turn toward him. And because they started turning to the Lord and walking toward him, they crossed all the other barriers, the, the social barriers, the political barriers, um, the racial barriers, they crossed them all and, and they began worshiping together. And in Antioch, you have the very first multicultural church. Probably not even just the first multicultural church, it's probably the first multicultural group of people in history in Antioch. I mean, just think about that, like how mind-blowing that was. And so you got these people that are, they're all worshiping together and word gets around and word gets up to Jerusalem and so they send Barnabas down to just check it out, to see what, what God is doing and Barnabas gets there and he just sees the beauty of it and he's like, wow, God's hand is at work here. Um, in Acts 13, you have in the first couple verses of Acts 13, it says that these are the five leaders of the church in Antioch. And we won't take time to read it, but you have five people who are from um, three different continents and four different nationalities represented. And these are the leaders in the church of Antioch. I mean, I just want you to understand like, just how absolutely extraordinary this was, what was happening in Antioch. And so the people who were outside the church, they like, had so many questions, like, what is going on with you people? And they didn't know what to call them. It's like we can't call them, like, where they're from. We can't call them, like, you know, where they belong in the social order. We don't even have a name for them. So you know what? We'll give them a name. And you know what name they gave them? Christians. Christians. Isn't that cool? Because you look around at this group of people and you say, you know what they have in common? Nothing. Like, they have nothing in common except Christ that they've all believed and they've turned to the Lord and Jesus is at the center of their community. And, and this is the church of Antioch, this beautiful church that is compelling, that, that bears witness to the kingdom of God that is breaking into the world. It is, is a beautiful, beautiful church. And so um, I just want to highlight just a couple things that if, if LifeBridge... If LifeBridge is going to be this kind of beautiful church in the world, uh, 
that, that the world needs, that has this transcendent beauty to it, there, there are a couple of things to just take note of here. One is the church needs to have a unified center, like a, a unified center, that if the church is going to put on display the beauty of unity, it is going to come from having Christ at the center of its life together. That's our only hope for it. Um, no one else is going to be able to hold together a, a diverse group of people across all of these spectrums. There's no leader that's going to be able to do it. There's no, our desire for unity will not be able to hold us together. Artificial boundaries that we put up to say like, hey, this is, this is, you know, who belongs and who doesn't. These boundaries we put up, they can't do it. They won't hold a group of people together. There is only one force on the planet that is powerful enough to hold a diverse group of people together, and that is the presence of the risen Christ among us. A church has to have a unified center. Um, this is what Jesus, he declares this in John 12, 32. He says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth... I will draw all people to myself. And he's talking about his crucifixion. He's like, when I am lifted up from the earth on the cross, there's something about that. There, there's like this gravity that is going to draw people to myself. Now, I like to rephrase it. I say, when Jesus is lifted up, he's going to draw all kinds of people to himself. Look around the room and say, all kinds of people. You don't have to do that, right? But I think this is... This is the church, right? The church is that motley crew of people that, that maybe you look at them on, the, on the, the surface and you're like, what do these people have in common? And the answer is they have a unified center that Jesus, the risen Jesus, is at the center and he is going to draw all kinds of people to himself. Um, and this is true. Like you look at the ministry of Jesus and in Matthew 10, it's, it's so compelling. Now this is one of the texts that you probably skip over in your daily Bible reading. You're probably not going to get this on the U version, like a couple of verses a day coming to you, um, because it's a list of names, right? It, it, and sometimes maybe we skip over the list of names, but, but don't. This is so, so interesting. Matthew, he's writing about who the 12 um, apostles were, the people who Jesus chose and surrounded himself with. And here's what Matthew says. It says, first, there's Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, there's James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, at first, you can read a list like that and be like, okay, yeah, great. I don't know any of those people. No big deal. Um, but there's something interesting. There are two occupations listed. What are they? Tax collector and... Simon the, the zealot. What do you know about tax collectors? Like, anything? Like, just from, nobody liked them. Yes. Why not? They were traitors. They, they were Jewish people who sold out their people and worked for the occupying Roman government. Right? And they got very wealthy. And how do they get wealthy? Through corruption. Through, through taxing, oppressively taxing their people. So when you hear tax collector, do not think IRS agent. Right? I mean, that's not what this is. This is much more like a mafia boss than it is an IRS agent. Right? I mean, this is, these people were, they were hated. And do you know who hated tax collectors the most? Zealots. 
What do you know about zealots from the New Testament? Anything? What was it? Extremists, yeah. Yeah. Yes, guerrilla warfare. They're violent. And, and they hated the Roman government. They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. And they would. They would kill a Roman official if they could. They, they carried, like, um, long knives under their cloaks. Um, but you know who they hated more than Rome? Tax collectors. Because they betrayed their own people. And they were, by the way, has anybody watched The Chosen? Have you seen this? I love the way Simon and Matthew are depicted in this. If you've never seen The Chosen, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal uh, show. And so you have, you have Jesus who calls, hey, Matthew, tax collector, hey, come follow me. Simon, the zealot, come follow me. You, can you imagine what the first dinner conversation was like when these two found out what the other person was? I mean, just so, so explosive. Now, here's the interesting question. Who wrote the Gospel of Matthew? Matthew the tax collector, right? Now, none of the other gospel writers record this in the same way that Matthew does. It's almost like Matthew makes this distinct like, addition to the text. He's like, by the way, I'm not going to mention James and John like they, they were fishermen, or I'm not going to mention any of the other occupations, but I want you to know I was a tax collector, and Simon was a zealot, and Jesus called us both to follow him. Because I think Matthew wanted to emphasize how revolutionary the kingdom of God actually is. That Jesus, when he is at the center, he is going to pull all kinds of people to himself. When Jesus is at the center of a, of a church, nothing else can be. Like your politi political affiliation cannot be at the center. Your net worth cannot be at the center. Your ethnicity cannot be at the center. Your, your preferences about any part of life cannot be in the center. If Jesus is Lord and he is at the center, nothing else can be. But on the other hand, if any of these things displaces Jesus at the center, then he can't be. I mean, this is something as a church, like we have to guard what is at the center of life together. What is it that is drawing us together? Because only Jesus has the power to create this kind of transcendent beauty in a group of people. So a unified center. Um, a, and secondly, there's a unified purpose. A unified center and a unified purpose. And I love this, that when Jesus is at the center, it's not that we just turn toward him, but we actually start moving toward him. Like that, that light, when Jesus says, come follow me, so we turn toward him, and then we start like moving toward him. And if we were all going to do this, if we were going to make you do this, but if we imagine Jesus was in the center, and we were all standing at our own places, and we started moving toward the center, what would happen to our relationship to ourselves, to each other? The closer we got to the center, what would happen to each other? The closer we would get to each other. And I think this is, this is what happens in the church, is like as we move with purpose toward him, growing in him, um, we actually get closer to one another. And this is what, this is what uh, Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, seek first the kingdom of God. Like, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Um, in Matthew 6.10, he says, he teaches us to pray this, like this daily prayer of God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I love that you guys are studying this on Wednesday nights, like the kingdom of God. This is our purpose. 
Our purpose is to say, God, would you help me see the world through your eyes? Would you give me your vision for it? Would you help me see every person I come in contact with as you see them? Somebody who is created in your image. Somebody who you, Jesus, have given your life for. Somebody who you have called to, to turn toward you and to move toward you. God, help me see every person that way. Help me see my community as you see it. And I love LifeBridge's vision. God, would your kingdom come and your will be done in Dover as it is in heaven? And I love that. That unified purpose that says this is what we are moving toward. And a church that has a unified center, it being Jesus, and a unified purpose of seeking the kingdom of God uh, together, this is a powerful thing. And I think when God sees that, he blesses it. It's like he pours his anointing on it and he blesses it and it fills it with his beauty. And the last thing that I think when God sees that, a unified center and a unified purpose, he fills us with a unified love. It's like this unified love. He pours out his heart onto his people. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 5. He says, like, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. I mean, that's, that's such a beautiful a beautiful image, like the love of God that he pours into our hearts. I love watching those woodworking videos. I'm, I'm not very handy, but I love watching those woodworking videos where they take like a table and, and they, you know, it, it's kind of beat up and it has holes in it and then they pour this epoxy into it with resin and it makes this, it like binds it all together. It makes this really compelling, beautiful surface. I think that's what God's love does is he pours it into the hearts of his church. He sees the, the unified center and a unified purpose and he meets it and he just pours his unified love into it. Any, any of you track with the Asbury, what happened at Asbury University a couple weeks ago? So in, in Asbury down in Kentucky, um, there was a, just a chapel service that didn't end for a couple weeks. Um, the, the speaker, he um, talked about God's love and just, he prays this prayer at the end. It was just a normal chapel service. He prays this, this prayer at the end. He says, God, revive us with your love. It's kind of his prayer. Walks off the stage and people be, go back into worship. And I don't know all the details of what happened, but people just didn't leave. Like there was this hunger for God's presence. There was Jesus at the center of this community and God just, you know, this transcendent beauty just sort of like, brings heaven into this gathering and fills these hungry hearts with an outpouring of his love. And, um, and it just became this, this magnet for other people, other people from across the college campus, from other college campuses, from other cities, from other countries, people around the world coming to experience like what God is doing, this outpouring of his love. And one of the evidences, as I listened to testimonies of people who were a part of that, they said, you know, um, I, I watched people on a college campus who, who didn't like each other, who they would like you talk bad about each other, and they, they were in different groups and just moved in different circles, and I watched them come together and worship, and I watched them reconcile in Jesus' name. And I watched the, the love of God be poured into their hearts. Like, this is one of the evidence of of I think God's presence is he just, he pours his love and he releases the transcendent beauty of heaven when he sees a heart, hearts that are open and unified with him at the center seeking his kingdom. Um, so I, wanna, I just want to end with this. In Revelation chapter four, 
In Revelation 4, we get a glimpse into heaven. And you get a glimpse into heaven, and you notice that at the center of everything, at the center of reality, I mean, that's what heaven is. Heaven is what is most real, what is most true. And at the center of it is a throne. And who's sitting on the throne? It's Jesus, right? Jesus is at the center of everything. He is on the throne, and all of heaven is, is kind of encircled around the throne, and all their eyes are fixed on him, and they're worshiping him, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come, and every living creature that is there, all eyes are on him, and they worship him, and they bow down, and they lay their crowns down, and they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, And uh, by your will they were created and they have their being. At the center of heaven is this throne that Jesus is sitting on. And then we get, it's like the, the vision pans out and we see this. And it says, and after I looked and there before me was this great multitude. Do you know what another name for a great multitude is? All kinds of people. All kinds of people. There was a great multitude that nobody could count, and they were from every nation, and every tribe, and every people, and every language. And what do they have in common? Nothing, except that they are standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and and they are worshiping Jesus, saying, Amen, praise and glory, wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is a glimpse into heaven, and I think the church is a glimpse of heaven. This is what we're called to be, is this glimpse of heaven, of this is what it looks like. This is what, this is what it looks like when people are, are pulled together under the unifying power of Jesus, when he is at the center, when his kingdom is our purpose, and his love is poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And so God, I, I just ask that um, that even this morning, that you would, you would meet us and revive us with your love. God, that you would, would see this, this beautiful group of people who are gathered in your name, who have come, Father, for no other reason than to worship you. Lord, I, I pray that, that at LifeBridge here, that, that the center would be so clear that it is you, that is your presence, that it is the risen Jesus among us that is drawing us. Because we, we just acknowledge and we declare that it is only you that has the power to bring us and hold us together. And God, uh, I pray that as, as my brothers and sisters, they, they seek you and they move toward you with this unified purpose that you would pour your love into their hearts through the Holy Spirit. God, any heart this morning that feels depleted, that feels uh, lonely, that feels um, outside of your grace, God, any heart that feels disconnected from you, would you pour your love into it through your Holy Spirit today? God, I pray that you would just pour your blessing on this church, that more and more the LifeBridge would be a beautiful church, that as people see um, these um, these, these folks, as, as they interact with them in the community, the places they live and they work and they, they hang out and play, God, that they would just get a glimpse of heaven 
through, through the lives of my brothers and sisters. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.